Hello and welcome to episode number nine of Islington Mill and a monthly podcast series about the cultural life and times of one of the UK's most beloved artist-led creative hubs, Salford's Islington Mill. One name that has been very closely associated with Islington Mill for ooh, over a decade now, I'd say anyway, is that of Nod, G-N-O-D, the band Nod, who I'm pretty sure I was aware of Nod before I even moved to Manchester and discovered Islington Mill, because before that I was still living in Glasgow and I was um, very involved in the kind of independent promotion DIY noise scene, so I'm pretty sure that Nod were on my radar, but I do have a cultural memory as well of coming to Manchester and going to see the band Divorce, who I was friends with from Glasgow. I'm not sure if Nod were supporting them, but they were definitely there in the audience because I remember the one of the lead singers of the band, Paddy, who had kind of um, dreadlocks in a kind of pineapple thing on the top of his head at the time, being very keen to get the mosh pit started before Divorce had even hit a chord. <laughs> this was at the Tiger Lounge, which doesn't exist anymore as far as I'm aware. We're talking easily 2010. Yeah, no, definitely 2010. It would have been around the same time that I moved to Manchester. I became aware that my friends in the band Divorce were playing a gig, a Tiger Lounge, so I went to see it. And I can't think of the first time I saw Nod was. I think that probably would have been here at Islington Mill at some point because practically, I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but I feel like nearly all the members of Nod were at some point practically all the members of not not every single one of them but the majority of them were at some point residents of Islington Mill either in the studios working here or some of the members of the band actually lived here including Paddy the um, one of the founder members along with Chris Haslam the other and another Chris who I've never met actually but Chris Haslam lived here as did Marlene Ribeiro who was Paddy's partner at the time and I'm also thinking about Alex McCart, who I'm pretty sure used to live at the mill at some point. And then there's Alex Wilson, who I don't know if he ever lived in the mill, but he definitely worked here and he still does, still works here. Um, and I'm sure there are other people whose names I'm forgetting. I think the thing about Nod is they have had a pretty large cast of floating band members over the years. They work quite collectively, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. But we'll be getting on into all of that um, as we go into the show. In fact, one of the things I wanted to speak to Paddy about was his time living in Islington Mill because when he did live here, he was living in this very space that I'm now recording this podcast in, which is Studio 409. Paddy lived here with Marlene at the time. And also, before Paddy was living in this space, Bill Campbell, who is the overall founder of Islington Mill, also used to live in this space. So I wanted to use this time to talk about the band Nod, definitely, but I also wanted to talk to both Paddy and Bill about their memories of living in this specific space, recording their recollections of what it was like to live here as we were sitting here chatting shy about living in Studio 409 and working from this space. So that's the general gist of this episode of Islington Mill and I'm going to cut the crap now and go straight to the interview without any further ado. I'm here in the Studio 409 with Bill Campbell and Paddy Shine yeah. of the band Nod. Um, you were both previous residents of this space, am I right? You've mm-hmm. lived here yes. rather than just been working people in this space. Um, and Paddy, you're best known for, how would you describe your role in the band Nod? Um uh well co-founder um alongside uh, Chris Haslam and uh Chris Morley Del, Del Morley uh, myself and Chris Haslam are still in the band but what's my role within the band um I play guitar I do a bit of shouting hmm. I, I write the music along with everybody else I organize a lot of, of how we get about although these days it kind of organizes itself because we've been 16 years nearly wow. 17 years wow doing it so it's kind of a it's it's a thing that looks after itself now really it just needs to be guided in the right direction every now and then mm-hmm. um and that's my role really mm. and it's like um it's like an addiction it's like an addiction yeah yeah can't give it up i can't give it up i've yeah. tried <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i have tried well you're 16 years deep now yeah it's like it's, i just can't get away from it and so i've kind of accepted that 
that it's gonna I'm gonna be on this nod train for possibly forever, and mm-hmm. I'm all right with that. Yeah, cool. It's okay. How did it? How did nod come to be? How did it start? Um, it was basically born out of uh, frustration with previous bands that we were all in, really. Um, um, a, a kind of being stuck in a certain mode of doing things and a certain idea of like what music could be and myself and Chris we were in these groups that were very maybe linear in their approach and we decided we want to go into playing music that was a little bit more out there and um, experimental and, and that's how it came about really and then our main goal really was only to release a record, to get a vinyl out there, because 17 years ago to put a record out was still quite a big deal. I'm sure it is now for, for artists now, for sure. But we kind of thought, if we do that, then we can we can call it a day. That's pretty good. Um, but it's kind of snowballed, really. It's um, it's taken on a life of its own. And I mean, it's not, not to say that we don't put a lot of work into it, but it has sort of... It's kind of like one of those things, like right time, right place, right people, and... And we've somehow found a magic formula that we can still work with each other after all these years, you know, mm. especially me and Chris, because we're the main people who've been in it mm. together for so long. But we seem to have found this magic formula, and it's amazing. It's kind of like been a great way to um, grow as a musician and and as a person because it's like being married mm. for seventeen years. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like it really is. It's like sharing a lot of space and time with mm-hmm. with somebody and getting mm-hmm. to know them and yeah. them seeing all your faults and vice versa and you know if how would you describe the sound of not to someone who's never heard them yeah it's a tough call that mm. really um, I, it's a very tough question to answer because um, we don't have a specific sound which is kind of like a, a, one of the things we wanted from the beginning was to not fit into any to not be pigeonholed so these days people might say we were a noise rock band because we've released quite a few noise rock albums but that would then be not doing justice to the little side releases we've had on the go which would be a bit more experimental so I don't know I I, I guess um, just a bit of a, a contrarian group I kind of yeah. like that yeah contrarian here's a, maybe an easier it? way of reframing that question like who are your own personal biggest influences oh wow and, and that's and why are they your influences? Oh, okay. that, that's tough, man. <laughs> that's really tough. I mean, I'll just, instead of thinking about it too much, mm. I'll just go with, with, with my gut, like my heart. So I would say for me, oh God, this is really tough. Obvious ones, Marky Smith, The Fall. You know, there's a group there that are like an institution um, and, you know, very you could never second guess The Fall, really. Um Oh my god! I mean, the whole Manchester scene. I think for for me as growing up uh, as a kid, I was obsessed with Mad Madchester, you know. And then I moved came to Manchester really because of that, and because everything I used to read in Melody Maker and sounds about the hacienda and about these crazy parties that were happening here, and I and I was just completely obsessed with it as a kid, and that's why I came here. And now I've come here and I've met a lot of the people that were involved in that scene in in one way or another or partied in it. And I would say that the groups involved with that and the people I read about and the parties I read about and and, and that that was probably my biggest influence really, you know. The kind of Manchester scene and the people of Manchester and the more that and now I've lived here and kind of dipped my toes in that and met loads of people. That yeah, I would safely say that it was and continues to be probably my biggest influence on approaching music, um, and whatever else art, mm-hmm. whatever how I dress. What, yeah, you know, I'm obviously just wearing my tracky bees today, and now it's Tuesday, mm-hmm. just chilling. Mm-hmm. But you know, just like Manchester's had a huge impact upon me because as a kid I was obsessed with it yeah and then I got to live here and meet quite a few of the people I would read about or mm. be go to the places that I read about and um and uh yeah to to be concise with that that's that's what I would say cool yeah. yeah can we rewind a little bit before that and yeah. in case people can't tell from your accent can you tell us where you're from originally 
Yeah, sure. I grew up in uh, Athlone in uh, this Athlone split between in Ireland. It's split between two counties, Westmead and Roscommon, and I kind of grew up mostly in the Roscommon side of of Athlone town. It's a very small barracks town. Um, it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a small little town. I used to be very negative about the town because I saw it as a bit of a kip, and now that's changed for me over the years because. I kind of see the beauty in it now, you know, and um, I kind of like the fact that it's um, a little bit behind the times, you know, okay. a little bit unchanged. It's yeah. something that I find really nice about that, mm. that it's still f- catching up, mm-hmm. still got a lot of catching up to do to where we are now, yeah. really, you know, in this city. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of really like that. Yeah. Um, but I grew up there, but I also spent a few years in America with my mom. So I was there for three and a half years in San Francisco as a kid. Oh, wow. Um, and that had a big impact on me. And then I left home when I was 17 and moved to Manchester when I was 17. So I've actually been in Manchester longer than I was in Ireland. Yeah. Like, easily, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, this it feels w- more like home to me, really. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and it was music that brought you to Manchester? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was obsessed with it as a kid from mm-hmm. the age. I, I remember the day... My next door neighbour, who was about four years older than me, he came back from, um, I think he went to a Manchester United game or something, something like that. He came back, he had a pair of red Joe Bloggs on. <laughs> he had he had a cassette, and I think it might have been the Stone Rose or the Happy Monday, something like that. Yeah. We sat in his dad's car. Yeah. His dad had a Seat Ibiza, yeah. which was quite flash in those days where I, where I was. And uh, we sat in his car, listened to this cassette, and uh, that was it, I was in. I was in, I was like, I need some fucking red jeans. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I need to get some of this cassette and I need to get a haircut like that. <laughs> and I'd say I was like, I don't know, 10 maybe? I can't remember what age it was. It would have been 89, 90. Mm. So that would have been, yeah, I would have been 10, 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember that period really well as well because I was, I reckon we we're about the same age if you were like 10. Yeah. Yeah. So. I was born in 79. Yeah, I was born in 78, so yeah, we're actually like the same age. I was born at the very end of 78, though, so I'm almost 79 myself. Yeah. But I do remember, like, the whole Manchester thing in the media seemed so bright and colourful. And it was something really like... It was a weird thing as well, though, because it seemed to only last for a very short period of time before suddenly grunge came out, and it kind of killed all that kind of, yeah. like, yeah. fun, up druggy, colourful, smiley face, psychedelic colour, yeah. marriage of dance and rock kind of stuff and all the cultures coming together. Yeah. But in that moment when, like, it was at its peak, like with the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and stuff like that, mm. it was super duper influential, but it just seemed like suddenly, like, grunge came out and it was like, oh, that's all dead now. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and stuff, yeah. yeah. Sincerity took over. Yeah. You know, so over sincerity and... Uh... Heavenly. Over sincerity because there's yeah. a lot of sincerity in the Manchester stuff. For sure, as well. yeah. The yeah. attitude, the attitude of, I remember being young and seeing like interviews with like, um, God, it could have been, it could have been anyone. It might have been uh, Tony Wilson or it could have been just, you know, random people on the street in Manchester, just kids, and then seeing like uh, interviews with whatever the the young Happy Mondays and that, and just the attitude they had. It was just so cool as a young mm. lad, as a young impressionable lad in Ireland. It was just like wow, like mm. fucking hell. These these are like these are just like normal kids, like scallywags or whatever. Mm. Where I'm from, we wouldn't call them scallies, but they were just like normal lads, mm. and um, they were they were just cool. And it was like sort of like yeah, I want. Yeah, I also remember like there being a very kind of it felt very connected to Ireland as well, um because obviously a lot of Irish people have moved to Manchester over the years. It's always been a very Irish friendly city. Yeah, but there's a Happy Mondays video. I think it's a video for Kinky Afro, but one of them's wearing an Ireland rugby jersey. Right. Okay. And that was very visual, like because I was kind of I didn't know who they were. Was are they Irish? Like what's going on with that? And then it's like it's a very kind of I feel like. Manchester is a very easy place for Irish people to relocate to because it's already very Irish yeah. and there's a lot of that kind of like mm. cultural stuff that you know is quite specific to Ireland is also kind of embedded here yeah. and stuff um, what was like did you do when you first came to Manchester did you have any kind of pilgrimage thing or did you do you remember like the first kind of musical things that you experienced when you got here um, when did you get here it was 97 yeah when did you get here 97 okay, okay. 97 
Um, yes, I, well, I went and did all the walking around Manchester to look at the Hacienda, and then I ended up at a couple of free parties at the Hacienda. Was it still open at that point? Cl- I can't remember. I don't think I went there in 97. It was about 98, 99. I think it closed in 98 or 99, and then there was a bunch of free parties that happened there. Oh, right, cool. So I ended up going to those. Like squat, kind of? Yeah, just yeah. like taking over the space before it got whatever, yeah. you know taken over and pulled apart um, and what else I mean I, at the time I came and I I managed to blag onto a course called professional sound and video technology at Salford University even though I got something like 130 points in my leave inserts which if people don't know the, the Irish <laughs> the Irish sort of education system is all based on points it's bullshit but anyway so I got 130 points out of 600 um, at school, and so I couldn't do anything really. I couldn't go to college, mm. but in Salford University, they just said, "Oh yeah, come on over, do mm. this um, this course." We don't know what that means anyway. Yeah, yeah, they were just like, "Well, <laughs> yeah, you're totally. fine, you're grand." Yeah, and um, so I come over, and I was kind of in the midst of kind of like being when analog technology was going out the door, and everything was turning digital. Mm. And they were teaching us everything about digital technology. Everybody who I went to college with all work for the BBC now, either the BBC or ITV. They've all got fucking really good jobs, mm. like mm. the majority of them, um, because they were seen as like, right, they, when we got to college and they were like, right, guys, you are the guys that are going to be taking over in the next five years. Everything's going to be digital and you're at the sort of, you're going to be the pioneers of this because yeah. you know how to use all this gear. Mm. But I didn't care. I just met a bunch of people who were just into smoking weed mm. and listening to music and wanted to get a band together. So we said, let's stay in college so we get our grants. This was still in, back in the day when you got a grant mm. to go to college. Mm. So we, we'll go, we'll attend college, we'll get our grants and we'll just like play music. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we I ended up flyering for a bunch of nightclubs, all the usual suspects, the venue and 42s. And then I ended up working... Uh, Sankey's mm. and and yeah and I can't really remember much of that I was just partying so hard really you mm. know like it was it was amazing I was getting to see a lot of the DJs I'd read about or mm. heard about they were there I was bringing them drinks mm. you know I was like had a sort of access all areas even though I was working but it was still it was like wow it was fucking amazing mm. to be in Manchester, going to these clubs, mm. and I was still really young. I was like, that's when I was about nineteen, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like a lot of these places don't exist anymore. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. Although you did mention forty twos, that's, that's still there. That'll never, that'll yeah. go. Yeah. On Princess Street. Yeah. No, it's on them. Um, fucking. Uh, it's off Dean's Gate, isn't it? Yeah. It's on, oh right. Yeah, it's okay. on the place on Princess Street. Are you thinking of the Muts Nuts? No. Where you said Pumptastic? There's that, but there was one a bit further down. I can't remember what that one was called. Oh, just yeah. over the Whitworth Street. Yeah. Uh, it was part of that Manchester kind Oh, of that was uh, 52nd Street. Is that 52nd, yeah. 42, yeah. 52nd? So I used to fly, <laughs> I used to fly her for them too. I flyered for all those. Oh, God. I mean, I think most, a lot of people did in Manchester. A lot of musicians in that in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were just flyering for all these shit clubs. Mm. I mean, just, there was a lot of them, there? there was a lot of these little small yeah, clubs yeah, around there that yeah. you'd find yourself... That's it. You'd go out and you'd fly for an hour and then you'd, like, throw them in the, in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then just go and smoke yeah, yeah. a load of weed with the rest of the flyers. <laughs> yeah. Have half a pill. But, well, like... <laughs> well, that, that must have been quite an interesting time in Manchester, though, because the kind of Manchester stuff... It was gone. It was gone. Yeah, it was gone. And, like, I moved to Manchester in 2010. Yeah. So I've been here for 12 years. Yeah. And when I moved here, because I also left Ireland around the same time, but I moved to Glasgow. Yeah. And I did a lot of my musical and club and bands, education, all that stuff I did in Glasgow. And when I got to Manchester in 2010, one of the things that struck me was how much of a massive culture industry has built around the kind of wanting to be back in the ni- yeah. in 1990. You for know, the sure, kind of retrospective, yeah. like, retro... Oh, live off the glory years forever. Like, um, obviously, Hacienda was gone, but there's still like fact, factory, fact two five one, whatever it's called, mm-hmm. yeah. which is still the kind of like, yeah. oh, it was the glory days of Tony Wilson and whatever, blah blah blah. Yeah. But like, what was actually like, what was happening? What was going on in Manchester in around ninety nine? Oh, there was some great things going on. So, Electric Chair, 
mm-hmm. had just not been long started up, and that was an absolute eye opener for me as a as a young lad going to a party. It absolutely blew my fucking mind. Um, I think so. I went to my first one. It was at the music box. I never went to it when it was at the Roadhouse, but I went when it started at the music box. And I, I think I went to an Electric Souls party before I went to an Electric Chair that they had upstairs above Sankey's. Uh, what a party, what a, amazing music, just like beautiful people, beautiful crowds, just kind of a lot like the mill. When it first started coming to the mill, you know, it was like that. It was very open, very mm. like open, very like non-judgmental, like do your thing vibe. And that was a kind of a new thing for me. Because prior to that, while well, I was going to nights, like there was a club called Havoc that used to be at the Phoenix. Do you remember the Phoenix on Oxford Road? It's knocked down now. It was a mm-hmm. weird place, the Phoenix. It was almost like a mini <coughs> shopping centre with a club and a bar in it, but it never really took off. Mm-hmm. It was for students. It was a horrible building. Was it like but near where the BBC used to be? It was further up the road <coughs> from the BBC, so it's across the road from the RNCM. Oh, oh yeah, where the bridge went over. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was there. So that's gone. That's yeah, long gone. gone. Yeah. yeah, but there used to be good club nights in there. So you had Havoc, which was just like acid techno banging, just free part, free party heads going to a club night there. But that was great crack. Um, there was another night, um, uh, One Tree Island, which was all the Hume lot. So like all the the hippies, nah, nah, not really hippies, but yeah, a mixture of like punks and hippies and all that Hume lot. Were, would put on a party with that. That was good crack. <coughs> there was a place called Zumbar. I remember going to that. There was a load of jungle nights. You were kind of spoiled for choice because there was yeah. so much happening. Yeah. Like Bill said, there were so many little clubs and little events and people would be every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night at somewhere like the Roadhouse. You had three different nights going on and you could go out partying all weekend. So you go to Roadhouse, but have three different kinds of styles of music and mm. three different groups of people. And mm. It was great. For, I mean, especially coming from Athlone, do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, holy shit, I'm in the promised land here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just getting my mind blown. Yeah, I was very I was very similar when I, when I moved to Glasgow. I bet, it was just yeah. like, all the stuff I'd read about in magazines and had to daydream about was something I could access. Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember going into FOP on Byers Road and like cassettes were like two ninety nine for something that just came out like six months ago, yeah. stuff like that. Whereas like in Ireland, it'd be like nine ninety nine at least, yeah, yeah, because they had to import and stuff yeah. to get a cassette of someone that you already liked, yeah. <coughs> and also just like flyers for stuff, yeah, like yeah, just seeing like names like Basement Jacks written on a flyer, and it's like what they play here, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just mind blowing when you come from a small Irish town where you're only. I mean, it's different now, but say like in the nineties and the eighties. The only way we had to access culture was either something on the telly, like Rapido or something, which would just show you a video, and you're like, oh, I like this. Mm. And then maybe the next video would be something shit, like Kim Wilde or something like that. Mm. Or a magazine, which was like, there was, it was, it was weird. It's weird thinking about it now because everything is so interconnected and stuff. But the only way you could access culture like that back then was there was only a couple of ways you could do it. And it felt so distant. Mm. Like, it felt real like it was out there and it was happening in the real world and real people were doing it but from my point of view because i grew up in a town called dungarvan which is like similar to athlone actually yeah, yeah. only dungarvan probably is a bit better off because it's got a tourism industry yeah which i don't know if athlone has it has a bit yeah it yeah. does it does but it's seasonal let's yeah, say yeah 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 but just that kind of like being able to physically be somewhere and go this here it's here like everything i want everything i've been yeah. Thinking about and dream daydreaming about experiencing. Yeah. Once I left Ireland could actually do it. Like it's quite yeah, I don't know. It's a really funny thing, I think, about being Irish and living in the UK is I don't think people in the UK get what the reality of growing up in Ireland is like. Yeah. Because they're so used to Irish people being around and also we're white so we look similar and stuff. But actually, like, the differences between growing up in a small town in Ireland and growing up in Manchester, mm-hmm. massive to the point where it's really quite hard to articulate it. Do you, do you think it's still that way now? I don't know. I mean, it's weird because now, yeah. now you've got the internet. Yeah. So people have a lot easier, quicker access to the cultural stuff, yeah. like music and videos and fashion and design and stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, 
this has kind of like got to do with my own personal relationship to the internet as well, mm-hmm. where I feel like at this point in time, the internet is not necessarily, it's being massively used by capitalism yeah. to sell dreams. So I don't know if like, for instance, kids who are like 15, 16 living in Ireland now, they might be able to access all the different kinds of music that we would have had to wait for the shop to get a tape yeah. with mm-hmm. one song on a Now album. You're like, I love that Acid House song, yeah. but I can only get it on a Now 21 or whatever, and I'll pay fourteen ninety nine to get the two tapes set just for this one song right. kind of thing. Kids now can just access anything they want wherever. Right. But that doesn't mean that the reality of the, the world they're living in corresponds to the stuff that they're consuming like yeah, for us yeah, yeah. and it's interesting that you said that like you like how Athlone is a bit behind the times and it's interesting to know that even though people in Ireland are very internet savvy and everyone's got the net and there's like Irish Twitter and stuff which is a gas but still that the reality of living in that country is like a time warp compared to what it's like over here yeah, yeah. like that's very interesting and it's interesting that you said that like you dig that now yeah because for me growing up it was like i need to get the fuck out of here yeah the first thing like, i wanted to do is just get out yeah, yeah. I, I think did. i think especially our generation especially were like that i mean yeah. it seems like every generation in ireland like most of the young people leave but i think at that time as well like in the 90s like we just had to get the hell out of there Doesn't and then when we got on. out everything went it went into a massive boom and I had all my friends ringing me going, fucking get back here, man. I've just crashed. I've just written off three cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to buy another one. Yeah, yeah. I bought two houses. Yeah. And it was like, fucking hell, the I Celtic know. Tiger. It was like, wow, you know. That was weird. Like, yeah. that was weird. That was weird seeing Ireland go from this backwater. Yeah. That was also really quite poor. Yeah. Like, people don't really recognize how, because I think technically Ireland was classed as a third world country. At that point, up until like the 50s and the 60s, because yeah. that's how much money people were living on. Yeah. And then it started to after the second world war you had the generational thing of kids leaving coming to england earning money and bringing it back mm. and that's when things start to change in ireland mm. but like up until the celtic tiger like it still felt so backwards like mm. and even so it was weird not being there and seeing the celtic tiger happen yeah but then also seeing what happened like in 2008 and 2010 well, yeah and stuff and also what's happening now yeah. watching it from a distance yeah. like the housing crisis yeah the housing crisis I mean has that had any impact on you this is something that like I hear about all the time from the media the Irish media that I still consume mm. but I'm obviously not living in Ireland and like don't know anybody yet of my like relations who are maybe they will be in a few years I think come to the age of looking to buy a house mm. but they're not ready for that yet so it's not a reality for them yet I don't think mm. so like have you it's really still quite abstract for me because it's just like, what the fuck is going on over there with housing? It, like? it's, it's not had a huge impact on me personally. I mean, because um, I move about a lot and I, I would never really want to buy a house anyway. Yeah. I, mean, I have I do have a house, but it's in Portugal. Mm. That costs me fucking peanuts because it's in the mountains and nobody mm. wants to live there. But, I mean, in Ireland, no, but I have family in Ireland who... Um, family members uh, all, all across the board, cousins and all that, who are in their 20s and 30s and they're living at home with their parents because mm. they cannot um, afford to buy a place or even rent a place. Yeah. And even if they could, there's nowhere to rent or to buy anyway. Mm. And yes. Yeah, so uh, do you mean an Athlone as well? Like? I mean Athlone, yeah. a, a, all over the shop. Yeah. And like it, to live in Athlone, for some people to rent a shitty little one or two bedroom flat in, in Athlone would be like, 1400 euros or something wow. do you know what I mean for like a shitty little flat that you, it's a dung hole really mm. and you wouldn't want to pay that money so but they're all full anyway people people live in them because there's, there's fuck all so mm. there is this sort of um, weird there's a lot of young people in Ireland now that might be what's the word in, in, infantilised infantilised you know who kind yeah. of just stuck in this Get not really breaking our way from the family. Yeah. The only way they could do would be move to Australia, move to the States, or move to, to the UK. Mm. But because there's good jobs in Ireland now, which there wasn't maybe previously, <coughs> what with all the tech firms there and the huge investment from American pharmaceutical companies and people like uh, 
who were the big um, the big uh, vaccine companies? What was the big one called? Pfizer. No, what was the other one? No, As, As, AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. So they have, I think they, like in Athlone, AstraZeneca have a fucking huge factory. Oh, right, okay. Huge factory. And they employ a lot of people from the town. And right. pay big money for people to work there. Yeah. But there's nowhere for these young people yeah. who work in these jobs to live. So employment isn't a problem because people are working for AstraZeneca. Oh, there's loads of work. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then I guess that's how people can afford to pay 1,400 euros for a shithole. Because yeah. they've got a decent job. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, that's and, interesting. And Athlone is also the kind of place where people go to raise a family. Yeah. It's nice, quiet, boring, very conservative. Yeah. Great place to have raise a family. But, yeah. you know, it's, the infrastructure isn't there. Like, I, I mean, I first moved back there five years ago and I was trying to get um, a fucking dentist or something. I can't remember. Something like that. And it says you have to go on the waiting list. And I was like, oh, okay. Right, and, I, and then I got just got chatting to the receptionist. She was sound, and um, she was say, I was saying, so what's going on? And she said, well, we've just got so many people moving into the town um, from all over Europe, and we just haven't got... We've got loads of people coming in, but we haven't got the infrastructure to deal with that. Mm. Like, it's you can see it here with like, have, us having these huge waiting lists for, for people, the schools, you know, there's not enough schools to deal with all the kids. Yeah. And the the direct provision situation, yeah. it's just like Ireland was just the the politicians just really didn't realise that they were going to have to really improve the infrastructure of the country. You know, yeah. I mean, they were too busy making a book. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. As most politicians are, it seems. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a funny old spot, Ireland. It it could get it right if it went down the route of like the Scandinavian countries. It could fucking do really. It could be mm. a great place. I mean, I think it's a great place anyway. Mm. To be honest, I mean, I, I don't really have many hang-ups about it anymore. I used to really be down on it, but I actually think it's it's a great spot. Mm. Um, and I think it could be an even better spot if if the right crowd were were in charge. But yeah, you could say that about anywhere. Could be anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, talking about living. And living in a place. Yeah. <laughs> We've got another guest with us today, yeah. Bill Campbell, yeah. who's been on this show loads of times, so I don't really need to introduce you, Bill. Okay. Um, how did you first meet Paddy? How did you guys get to know each other? Uh, I remember the very first time. Oh, yeah, go on. Do I don't know if Bill does. <laughs> um, Why would that be? <laughs> no, it was gas, because we came to a party. There was a bunch of us. It would have been me, Chris... And a bunch of the North Manchester people. And I think it might have been your sister's birthday party. My sister's birthday party? I think party. so, yeah. Okay. But this, I'm going back now a fucking really long time. I can't even remember, but it's a long time before any of the, the floors were ready to go. So you just right. had the ground floor. And there was a little party going on. And I don't know how we ended up getting onto it. And But we, we you let us in anyway. And we, had a night, we were having a really nice time down there partying. And then we ended up somewhere up on the floors because I don't know how that happened, but we did. And then we were all ended up sitting around drumming with all this building material that was around. And we were drumming and making noise and jamming like idiots. And then you like appeared out of nowhere and you were like, oh, are you guys, is everybody okay here? Are you guys all right? And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you were like, okay, right, just be careful. And then you, and then you left. And that's the first time I remember. That was the first time I remember meeting you. But that was like, and then it was years after that, like quite a few years, maybe like four or five years, possibly I don't know, three to five years after that, where we well, met properly. I think because I was going to say I met you when you were doing a gig here. That's right. And you came and sound checked in the afternoon, and I was building the picnic benches outside. That's and right. Yeah. When we had a chat. Yeah, yeah. But maybe you played here before with. I played with the Stranger Sun here before, when with the fire engines. Fire engines. Yeah. That's when, when, the, when the stage was at this side of the building. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the first like gig gigs rather yeah. than a club render gig that yeah. we did. Yeah. Freezing that night. It was yeah. No heating. No heating. It was good though. Yeah. It was really good. It was a great night. Yeah. That's like. But we didn't meet then. We didn't. We didn't meet then. No. It was at the Acid Mother show. Oh, I said, was that a Golden Lab? I wondered if it was Nick, Nick Mitchell's Golden Lab. It wasn't. Lab. You know what it was? It was an all-dayer with Serena and... Um, what was what was Serena and Thingy's night called? Something Wolf? No. 
Do you remember Serena? Serena or Selena? Oh, maybe it was Selena. Blonde-haired lady. I, I remember a Selena. I know a Selena with blonde hair. Yeah, it must be that. Nice. It was like DJs and she's a promote. She was a promoter. Yeah. And her and I can't remember the <laughs> Fucking hell, really bad with names. Lovely people anyway. It was one of their gigs. I think it was an all-dayer. Okay. Um, I remember it being during the day, like yeah. just a Saturday afternoon or whatever, yeah. and I was just popping about in the courtyard yeah. doing some stuff, and then you guys were all hanging out and yeah. having a chat with you. Yeah, and then we had like a bit of a, a do that night, didn't we? A bit of a party. Yeah. And then I think then from there, I think you then just said to us... Um, well, I can't remember what happened. If it was that night, we were said, yeah, we're looking for a rehearsal space. And you said, oh, check this space out. And you brought us into the back room behind the behind the venue, behind the stage. Okay, so that bit of recording studio. <laughs> That's right. And you said, this is going if you want it. And we said, yes, please. And, and then we moved in, in there and started rehearsing. And we were like here, because in those days, we would rehearse three or four days a week. Or nights a week, so we were here. We were around a lot. Mm, forgotten years in there. Yeah, so we were around a lot. When was that then? God, I don't know. It must have been two thousand and ten. Okay. It must have been two thousand and ten, end of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Because you've been got that. Well, you said sixteen years before, so you would have been going. Four years by then. Yeah, we were two thousand and six. Actually, two thousand and six when we first started jamming as Nod. Mm. So what's that now? How many years? Sixteen. Sixteen years. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's when we first met, and. Yeah, I can't remember. We were just getting. We were just. Because at that point, after that, the mill was the gigs were happening, but then it became quite. It went quiet for a bit, didn't it? There was a bit of a refurb going on. Oh, okay. There so was we, like we the, put the ramp in and the new door. That's right. Maybe. So there was a bunch of gigs happening, and then it went quiet, and there was all that, and and that felt that was like, that was almost like the quiet before the storm, really, wasn't it? That's how I see it. <laughs> it depends which storm. Well, I know there's been a few, but <laughs> it, for sort of like my at my time at the mill, I think, the period after that up until like five years ago, mm-hmm. five or six years ago. That was when it like the mill was, was it was just crazy. It was like there was something on every night, or there was something going on, yeah. like every day, every night, and it was just like, like really full on, really full on, amazingly full on, you know. Um, because for me that's like the midway point because we'd started doing stuff in. 2004 five so we'd already had like five years of five years of doing that mayhem and that was really well it's fire engines gig was around that time yeah. 2005 six and there like, was an acid mother's gig too that we all came to when the stage was there i remember being and, and uh, sounds from the other city, sounds from the other city. a few years by then so it kind of we'd got into a bit of a rhythm by that point yeah and we used to always make we used to always get into the parties the after party from sound for sounds here at the mill so mm-hmm. we were always at that as well it sounds like from my knowledge of the mill timeline that kind of like post 2010 the kind of off their heads era when Riv was here mm. booking stuff Riv in. was booking stuff so it was a bit yeah. more formalised in terms of we're actually working with promoters and, and agents and stuff like that possibly yeah we were doing of. our own bookings whereas prior to that it was well people like Nick Mitchell bringing stuff here yeah you know, there was a handful of promoters like yeah. Selena mm-hmm. investing prop, doing investing property and uh, Tramp and people like mm. that. Yeah, who were doing kind of band club nights, and they'd bring stuff here. But we didn't do many, if any, bookings ourselves mm-hmm. up till up until Riff. So maybe it's that bit when we started doing like more stuff every every few nights rather than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every that's a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's maybe. that's the bit where I really remember. Yeah, because the refurb happened, the new bar got put in. There was the ramp, blah blah blah, and then it was like, boom, doors are open, fucking let's go. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it was around that point. I, I think I can't remember when when we moved into this space. When, uh, well, yeah. that's the next question. Yeah, to ask about because we're currently sat in Studio Four Hundred Nine. Yeah. Um. And I've already covered with you, Bill, how you came to live here. You like yeah. it was the first place within the mill that you 
came to live here. Paddy, how did you come to live in here? Well, I needed somewhere to live. I, um, myself and Marlene uh, needed somewhere to live together. And I can't remember. I mentioned it to Bill. And Bill was like, oh, I know a place. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing you've got to do to get it is to move the fridge, the fridge of doom. Out of there. <laughs> what was the fridge of doom? Uh, it was just a fridge that I got left in here, and um, it, with stuff point, in it. At one point, it had a freezer full of high quality meats oh. and seafood. <laughs> but obviously, the um, the power there'd been a few power cuts or something over the years, and maybe and maybe the fridge, the fuse went on the fridge, and the fridge got forgotten about because it was in a corner and. Mm. These things happen. What Maury, my <laughs> husband, also from Ireland, grew up on a farm, had always said, as soon as that happened, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm used to the, the stink of robbing oh. animals. Oh. <laughs> Only yeah. he didn't quite get around to it that weekend or that month yeah. or that year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So me, me and James, we did it. And we had to like gaffer tape it together, seal it. It still leaked out. It was horrendous, but oh. we got the fridge out, and then we came in and we 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 got the space and we put these walls in. Uh -huh. Really, really funny those those walls, aren't they? There, but they work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're putting that like plasterboard wall. How would you describe them? <laughs> yeah, not meeting at the top. Yeah, that was part <laughs> of the design, the you know. Yeah, that's the design. Yeah, it's a kind of a New York sort of like Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> sort of thing going on there. Yeah. Bit of air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> has this has this space changed much since you lived here? Um, well, not really. I mean, obviously you've knocked this wall out here to mm -hmm. make this room bigger because this used to be two rooms, um, and uh, there's a lot more stuff in there. I mean, when we were living here, we were quite we had all of our shit in there. That's mm. the only difference really. Mm. And the fire for us. The, the wood burning stove for us was like the epicenter of the whole yeah. place. Yeah. And that seems to be kind of forgotten about now, which I think is a real shame because mm. the fire was amazing. Mm -hmm. And we used to, because you have that big table out there that you used to use for cutting material or mm -hmm. doing stuff on. And that was like our kind of dinner table. So we could fit 12 to 15 people mm -hmm. around that table. And it was amazing. So we had loads. The best thing about it actually was having loads of dinners there with artists who were in residence or just the people that were here in the studios on, on all the floors. We'd all sit around there quite a lot, you know, two or three nights a week, be a big dinner together. And I think that's where a lot of really good f friendships were made, uh, relationships, ideas for projects. Um, that all happened around that table. I had some of the best nights ever just sat around that table talking shit. Mm. And um, and it was like, um, the great thing about this sort of flat as well, a flat, this space was, um, we were kind of the only people that had an oven and there was quite a few people sort of staying here or spending a couple of nights at their studios at one point, you know, working, they were working really hard. Mm. And um, so they, you know, I'd come out in the morning or whatever and somebody would just be like whacking a pizza in the oven like oh all right and I'd be like, oh, all right <laughs> yeah. and it was it was kind of it was like that it was a very shared shared sort of situation so even though it was like your flat it was like there was a communal aspect to absolutely it. Yeah. yeah and i i really enjoyed that actually you know i mean obviously didn't enjoy, maybe not enjoy it all the time when you'd come out and somebody would be like on your sofa and you're like who are you yeah. <laughs> but there was something really nice about that as well because when I would go away and tour with the band or whatever, I'd just leave the door unlocked and open and you knew that I'd come back and everything was always wow. absolutely fine. Yeah. And Was uh, that also because you took all your most valuable possessions on tour with you? No, 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 <laughs> okay. definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. But it was just, yeah, it was, it was a very, um, yeah, it was a very open, very uh, fruitful time. I mean, and also I had some, Personally, in this space, I had some of the biggest like life-changing moments. Well, God, that sounds so dramatic, but I had a few epiphanies and, and revelations in regards to like how I was going to live my life, mm. or to how I would um, like to live my life, and um, sort of um, 
coming to terms with um, getting, um, you know, like there was a, I remember a point where I was living here and I was like, right, that's it. I'm fucking like, I'm going to start running and I'm going to like be really fit and healthy. And I had gone and done that Wim Hof thing in 2014 or whatever. And I decided after Wim Hof thing, like that was it. No more fucking staying up till like from Friday till Sunday, I'm going to be. And uh, that was all happening here. And that was at the peak time of when the party shit was happening here. Um, and it was a really good lesson for me in like sort of um, dealing with my own sort of shit in regards to coming to terms with, with not wanting to party so much anymore and like learning to kind of chill out and and then being with all these really nice supportive people who would take the piss out of me and like look after me at the same time and um, mm. yeah it was it was it was really good it was a, 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 I learned a lot yeah being in this space I definitely feel that yeah, I totally empathise with that. There is something about this space that, like, I don't know how to articulate it, like, helps you refine yourself. I don't know. That maybe, that seems like quite a clinical way of, but I don't but know. that's your experience of it now as well, is it? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, basically, my history with this space was... Uh, over the course of lockdown, it was the summer, I think, or towards the end of the summer of lockdown, I quit my job and I was looking for other forms of things to do, other forms of income to bring in. And I'd been talking to people about wanting to start a, a podcast mm. and you overheard me and you approached me saying that like you would like to be interviewed for a podcast, which we did, which was for the first podcast that I did, which uh, was called Body Talk and it was about queer stuff. Um, and then off the back of that, I then went and did a quite long set of interviews with you oh, yeah, yeah. over the space of a few days about your um, recovery process, yeah. um, which are like private interviews. They um, haven't been published publicly. Um, and we did them in here. And at the end of that process, you said to me, I don't use the space anymore. Do you need wow. access to a space? And I was like, fuck yeah. Um, and off the back of that, I knew then that stuff like Laurie, who also uses the this music studio, mm. was looking for a place to come and rehearse. And me and Laurie could work together. So I asked Laurie to come in. And me and Laurie kind of came into the space and like started bringing other other of our friends, our musical friends in and, and like populating it with stuff. Mm. And I was able to use this space to uh, produce stuff that became my income. Mm. And... What that allowed me to do was, because up to the point of, I was working as a carer at that, before I quit my job, my job before that I was working as a carer, mm. and like, holy shit, working as a carer under lockdown was like, under the pandemic. Mm. Next level stress, and, and, and it just kind of, you know, we've all got our own lockdown stories, but for me personally, working as a carer, and having to go out day after day, in the whole era of when they were calling people, quote unquote, heroes, Mm. frontline quote-unquote heroes mm. what that meant to me was your life is disposable yeah we don't mm. care if you live or die yeah. and if you do die you get a round of applause but yeah, are we yeah. going to give you a better wage are we fuck yeah so it really came to a head here so i had to kind of quit everything and i was living off um a bit of money that i'd saved up but through working in here i was able to create and produce stuff that was able to bring in more like a living i was able to make a living off it Great. and it allowed me to refocus what i wanted to do and kind of get away from the capitalistic system of the labor of your body, especially under lockdown when you're like, I felt like my body was in real danger because I was having to go on the bus every day and mm. people were coughing and stuff. And like, this is before we knew the reality of, mm. but we were still under all that anxiety. So being able to like cut all that out of my life, come here to this space, be able to focus on what it was that I wanted to do and what I wanted to create. And then having the space and the freedom and the people around me who were able to, I was able to turn that into an alternative income stream for myself. Wow. And then since that, it's just built up. And like, I, because I, I mentioned before that like I, I used to, I moved, I left Ireland and I moved to Glasgow. 
and Glasgow was like from talking to you I know that you did a lot of your kind of post Ireland growing up in Manchester mm-hmm. I did so much of that in Glasgow mm-hmm. I used to have a music studio in Glasgow very very similar to this mm-hmm. but it ended very badly um, someone tried to there was an arson attack and someone tried to burn the building down oh, and um, and I was the last person to leave the building that night and my close friend who had a studio downstairs I was literally on the bus on the way home she ran me up and she said are you still at the Chateau and I was like no why and she was like it's on fire Oh my God. And I was just like, I didn't exactly wet myself, but it was very, very close because I literally just left that place 15 minutes ago. What the fuck? Wow. Mm. Um, so I've carried around a lot of baggage and trauma about that happening to me, which I've been able to work out here by bringing all my music equipment in here instead and setting it up again. Yeah. And I feel like I've been given a second crack of the whip in nice. terms of like setting up a music studio and being able to actually get my musical friends to come and collaborate and like, mm. let's do this again. Mm. And the fact that this space has given that to me is incredible. Yeah. Like I'm always going to be so grateful for that. Like yeah. it's literally changed my life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like changed my life, not in terms of, seeded something in me changed my life in terms of that seed was already there but this is the place where that seed was able to grow yeah i would say the same i'd say the same for 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 me and for nod because i was living here chris was downstairs me and me and marlene were living here so there's three nod people here and it was living in this place where um we formulated you know we did a lot where nod did most of the groundwork for itself in in the period that we were here at the mill from Mm. rehearsing from meeting so many people being able to go to so many gigs be kind of almost like the in-house band in in a lot of ways Mm. um we'd manage we could use the venue space to record and rehearse in it's where we first got the nod rig together where we put our own sound system together and we could test run it in that space with our sound engineer who was the in-house engineer for the mill you know it was and he was also living here as well wasn't he rakes was living here oh god yeah and then it was a place where i developed (laughs) tesla tapes my record label where Mm -hmm. marlene recorded her first album as negro branca which to me is still one of the best things to come out of the mill musically speaking i think it's phenomenal piece of work and she, it was that all happened here in this like in this space, really. Mm. So, God, yeah, the amount of stuff really that happened here, mm. and the amount of people we got to meet and host, and when the parties or the gigs were happening, sit up here with somebody, sit around the fire with somebody who'd just done a gig downstairs, and they might just want a quiet space to sit in, have a cup of tea for mm. half an hour, mm. and they could come up here and we'd mm. sit and just like sit around the fire. Yeah. Um. And that would blow their minds as well because they were like, fucking hell, no way is this here, you know? It was yeah. like, a... so yeah, it was fucking, we were very lucky, we were very grateful actually, Bill, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure I have thanked you, but I'm going to thank you again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On record, so much, man. On record. <laughs> yeah, both very well. You're so generous, like, with this, you know, because, and this space, obviously this space has got a bit of magic to it, for mm, sure. Then, definitely. It? Was it like that for you when you were here? Did it... What, the, a space of, yeah. Well, excitement, yeah. potential. Yeah, because yeah, it was the first space that I was occupying. So, you know, for me, it was like literally coming into a derelict warehouse. Mm. And very quickly it became, wow, what can we do with this? Imagine, because we were just running around the whole mill on our own. There was nobody else here then. Yeah. So this is, for me, <clears throat> I think of it as my kind of spiritual home in this place, because mm. this is where all the seeds of mm. what the whole mill could become was hatched around a table maybe not that one a few drinks that is that is still the same big (laughs) that is the same pattern curtain table isn't it yeah 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 it's the same table yeah yeah so how long how many years has that table been here well 20 20 there you go it's the same table 20 Well, yeah. Maybe it's the table that has the magic in it. Yeah, a lot of plans get hatched around that table. I mean, I think I think the table has got the magic because it's like the space. The space is very important, but then the big table is very inviting because it's like, what are we going to do around this table? Mm-hmm. You can either work on it or sit around, eat, mm-hmm. chat, fucking come up with ideas, up. makes, yeah, skin up, come up with a plan, forget all about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> all in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> all in 20 years and five minutes. Right, that's, a, I'm going to end it here because it's a really beautiful place to end it. 
So thank you both, Paddy Shine and Bill Campbell, for this interview about thank you, Niall. the history yeah, of Nod and Studio 409. And Lovely. let's hope it's a good future too. Thank yeah, you guys. Thank you, man. Nice one. And there you have it. All there's left for me to do now is to firstly apologise for some of those very rough edits at the start of the show. I completely forgot I was talking about the Ruby Lounge and what I meant was the Tiger Lounge. Those are two different venues in Manchester. The Tiger Lounge is gone and I think the Ruby Lounge is still there but I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, that's why it sounded a bit weird when I was talking about the Tiger Lounge. And the second thing for me to do to say adieu for this episode of Islington Milan is to play you out with some nod. This is taken from the album Infinity Machines, which was released on Rocket Recordings in 2015. You can get it on Bandcamp. Remember to spell nod, G-N-O-D. Bandcamp, I'm sure you can work that stuff out. And this is Breaking the Hex. Till next time.